Welcome to the Central Christian Church Podcast. We pray this message helps you find and follow Jesus. If you would like to connect with us more, please visit us at centralsj.org. Well, hey, I'm excited because next week we're kicking off a a brand new series as we're going to be studying verse by verse through an incredible book, the book of Romans. The book of Romans is perhaps one of the most prolific books in all of the Bible. And one thing is certain whenever it comes to the Bible is that the Bible does not shy away from culturally controversial topics, but rather it addresses them head on. And as we begin our our study through the book of Romans the next few weeks, in chapter one, we quickly realize that Paul is beginning to address uh, something that is a bit of a lightning rod topic in our culture, and that is homosexuality. And so rather than waiting till we get to the book of Romans, until we get to that part of Romans, I thought maybe we'd just address it head on as a church to discover and examine what does the the Bible say about this topic of gender, about about sexuality. And so today, the title of our message is A Biblical View of Sexuality and Gender. Now, obviously, whenever it comes to this topic, there's a whole lot more that could be said, a whole lot more that needs to be said than I'm able to articulate in just a 30-minute message. And so we'd love to continue the conversation. If you're in the Bay Area, uh, next Sunday, we're going to be meeting on campus from 4 to 6 p.m. Uh, with professor from William Jessup University, Professor uh, Juan Luna will be on campus to talk more about this topic. Uh, not only will we have more information, but also roundtable conversation uh, to discuss this as a church family and to process this and to, to work through some of the emotion uh, that comes with this. And so I hope you'll be able to join us for that. As we begin the message too, for parents that perhaps have young kids uh, in the living room or with you where you're, you're viewing this, uh, I would just encourage you to consider to determine whether you want uh, your son, your daughter, the young person that you're with, uh, to hear some explicit terms. Uh, I don't want to, I don't often start messages in that way, uh, but today I would say parental discretion is advised in light of some necessary information for us to better understand this topic. At the start of the message, let me just be very clear that the purpose of this message is not to lament the condition of our society or our culture. The purpose of this message is not to disparage people in any way. It is not to position ourselves against anybody that may not agree with a biblical view of sexuality and gender, but rather is my desire to offer hope by looking to to God's word, to timeless truths that we can build our lives upon, to, to say, God, what does your word say about this? It's my hope that and desire that we're able to offer some clarity coming out of this in the midst of a very confusing season in our culture and in our country, especially when it comes to this topic of sexuality and gender. Specifically, I'd like to offer a hope to those in the transgender community. I want you to know that you are welcome here at Central Christian Church. I want you to know that God loves you uh, more than you can imagine more than a guy like me could ever be able to articulate. I want you to know that, that we love you. I love you. And uh, I'm here to help you however, however I can. I want to offer some clarity to young people who are personally struggling or seeing their peers, seeing friends struggle with issues of gender and sexuality and how to process that with them in, in a loving and caring way. Uh, I also want to be able to encourage parents and educators who perhaps you have kids who are struggling with, with gender, or, or maybe you're a teacher in education, and how do you process gender and sexuality with the students that are entrusted into your care? Now, obviously, this is an uncomfortable topic for many of us, 
It's certainly an uncomfortable topic for me to be teaching on from the front, but however, our call as followers of Jesus is not a call to comfort. Unquestionably, my role as pastor of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to not only teach on topics I enjoy, uh, but to talk about difficult topics that the Bible addresses. Where the Bible's silent, we're silent, but where the Bible speaks, uh, we're compelled to speak. And so when it comes to this topic, by, by God's word, we're compelled to speak out and stand for what the Bible shares. At the start of this message, I want to acknowledge that I am deeply indebted to Preston Sprinkle in his book, uh, Embodied. It's a great book. I encourage you to pick it up. Uh, if you are able to get here in person, and maybe you're watching this uh, online service before and you're volunteering today uh, on campus, I encourage you, we're going to have this book available in the cafe for you to pick up. But this is a tremendous book by Preston Sprinkle. And I would say if you have uh, transgender coworkers, maybe uh, loved one, family members, people that, that you deeply care about, and you're, you're struggling to say, how do I relate to them? I think this book does a great job of, of letting us into the mind, letting us into some of that that, that processing, how the view of life uh, from a trans, transgender perspective and, and, and enable us to love people better in that, in that community. Also want to mention a resource for parents. It's entitled The Talk, Seven Lessons to Introduce Your Child to Biblical Sexuality by Luke uh, Gilkerson. Uh, this is a great resource. I've gone through this with, with our kids this summer. And as parents, I just would say that we need to be on the front end of this conversation and, and take initiative. We need to take initiative back because the reality is that if you don't take initiative, uh, the boys on the ball team will be educating your children about sexuality and gender. Uh, their, their teachers, their educators will be doing that in the public school system. And, and the reality is that your children already are exposed to more of this topic than you and I realize. That was one of the things that was honestly surprising to me as I talked through this, this book with our kids this summer is, is how much they already know and are exposed to by YouTube kids, by movies, by things that they see on television. Uh, I would say this before you open this, don't just open it up with your kids in front of you for the first time. Parents, you're gonna wanna peruse this first. Uh, there are some images in there that may be a little bit shocking to your child um, whenever you open them. What they're saying now is for parents that, that we need to be having this conversation with our children before they go into elementary school. So about the age of six, but as they enter into first grade, uh, because it is that rampant, because it is that in your face, in their face, in our current society. Very serious matter. So when it comes to gender, in our present culture, we have moved from the presumption of two genders, male and female, and now we've moved to a culture of acceptance and accommodation for 72 gender combinations. It used to be that a person's sex and gender were considered to be synonymous, but within the past 20 years, that has radically changed. Medical news today makes this statement that gender is different than sex. Although genetic factors typically define a person's sex, gender refers to how they identify inside. Only the person themselves can determine what their gender identity is. And so my question to you is, is that true? Is that a true statement? This is what the medical field is beginning to, to state. This is what cultures begin to state. But is that a true statement? It's what our kids are being told, but, but how do we lead them to truth? If, that's why maybe whenever you're on LinkedIn and, and interacting with uh, colleagues on there, or perhaps at the bottom of email signatures, you're seeing increasingly that not only there's a person's name there, but there's pronouns following that name to give you a sense of what gender they want to be addressed as or known by. 
And so it leads us to our first question, and that is, what does the Bible say about sexual and gender identity? What does the Bible say about sexual and gender identity? Uh, Recently, there's been a, a very hot, controversial documentary by Matt Walsh, so much so that it keeps being removed from YouTube. And so if you can get your hands on it, it is very interesting to watch. But Matt Walsh asked men and women across America this one question, what is a woman? And what would appear to be a very simple, straightforward question, that one question, what is a woman, baffles men and women across America. So for starters, let's, let's ask the question, what is it that makes a person inherently, biologically male or female? So what is it that makes a person inherently biologically male or female? The first is sexual, external sexual anatomy. As for females, females have breast and a vulva. Uh, males have a penis and a scrotum. Second, internal reproductive organs. Females have ovaries and a uterus. Males have testicles. The endocrine system, which we all have to create uh, hormones that, that give us sexual characteristics, Females have higher levels of estrogen to contribute to breast development and other features, while males have higher levels of testosterone that produce facial hair and muscle mass. A person's sex is not the result of a social construct or a culturally construct. It is simply a matter of physical biology. As I've mentioned, it was once commonly accepted that sex and anatomy were synonymous. If you have a male anatomy, then your sex was a male. If you have a female anatomy, then your, your sex was female. But today, in secular society, the increase, it's increasingly accepted view that a person's gender identity is based on their own personal sense of self. So they may be male, they may be female, they may be both, or they may be neither. As I mentioned earlier, there are currently 72 defined Genders, starting with agender, androgynous gender, bigender, cisgender, and the list goes on and on. Which brings us to the whole subject of transgender. Transgender is, in many respects, a catch all for the various ways that people experience conflict between their biological sex and their gender identity or gender role. The primary belief of the transgender community is that sex and gender are two, two different things. They would say a person's gender rather than a person's biological sex is the basis from which a person's identity is built. In other words, a person may be female, but if they feel like they are male, then they should act like a male. They should even change their biological anatomy to reflect that inner sense of self. And this is being promoted at an alarming rate in our culture. Among young kids, kids' programming is currently changing the next generation in a massive, massive way. A recent count, there's 70 kids programs featuring 259 characters that have a variety of gender identities. These shows include Blue's Clues, My Little Pony, Disney DuckTales, Clifford the Big Red Dog, Star Wars Resistance, and the list goes on. Uh, Movies are in on this agenda as well, and there's a long list of family blockbuster movies promoting gender confusion. Most recently, Buzz Lightyear, Pixar's Buzz Lightyear, uh, Doctor Strange in the Metaverse of Madness, West Side Story, Eternals are just a few of the growing list of movies that are glamorizing and celebrating an anti-biblical view of gender. 
Toy makers have gotten in on this as well. You may have heard of Hasbro and Mr. Potato Head. Uh, Mr. Potato Head for generations was a male potato head that kids could play with, but uh, that's now changed to just Potato Head so that uh, boys and girls can pick which gender they want Mr. Potato Head to be. So it goes on in media and popular culture that there is a promotion of what we might call a transgender agenda. We see this agenda in schools. Here in California, public educators are encouraged to take kids on a gender exploration journey without parental consent. Politically, this is also being facilitated with laws such as the one that was passed recently in Scotland that would allow four-year-olds to identify as the opposite sex and alter their names without parental consent, four-year-olds. Here in California, 12-year-olds can receive cross-sex hormones and puberty blockers, all without parental consent or parental knowledge. In Oregon, 15-year-olds can medically transition without parental consent. But the real question for us, all this boils down to, is what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about sexuality and gender identity? Well, to begin to answer that question, let's go back to the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1 at the creation account. It says this in Genesis 1.26, it says, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like ourselves. They will reign over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, the livestock and all the wild animals on earth, the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So this passage teaches us that God created two genders and only two genders, male and female. That is, that is God's design. It further tells us that God made us in the image of God. And so there are aspects of God's character. There are aspects of God that are revealed in the male gender. There are aspects of God that are only revealed in the female gender. And together, we are able to reflect our good and gracious God. Jesus himself affirmed this understanding in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 4. Jesus said this, he says, haven't you read the scriptures? He replied, they record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. So Jesus is not silent on this topic as many people would like to state, but rather he holds the story in creation as authoritative reminding us that God's intentional design for each of us was male and, and female. All of which tells us that our sexuality and gender is not based on how we feel about it. God has intentionally designed our bodies and identity that we might demonstrate his will for our good and for his glory. To deny God's design of our bodies would be to tell God that he somehow made a mistake and somehow we know best. And the enemy of your soul and mine would love that. What the enemy wants to do is confuse people's identity so that they won't understand who they are and they won't know who God has created them to be. Back to Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, 28. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. What this is telling us is that in addition to creating human beings in his image, part of that purpose, not the entire purpose, but certainly part of that purpose is to fill the earth, which means reproduction, to, to govern it, which means, to, 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 means rulership, means to, to, to be entrusted with creation, to steward it, it well. 
And let me say this, I think it is worth reiterating in our day when children have become somewhat of a nuisance or at least viewed as a nuisance or somehow an inconvenience or an option, part of God's creation of creating us male and females is that we would be uniquely gifted and created to reproduce with with the gift of reproduction in mind. One of the best gifts that you can give God is a commitment to raise your child in a way that is honoring to him. One of the best gifts that you and I can give society is a child who is confident in their God-given identity, a child raised to know God, to honor God, and to live with integrity. If you're not able to have children, then there's a lot of options. Uh, You can set your heart on being the greatest aunt or the greatest uncle in the history of humanity. Uh, You can set your heart to, to adopt and not only meet a tremendous growing need in our culture, in our society, there, there are many kids that would long to have a loving family, a loving parent like you. You could also get involved in children's ministry. There, there's all kinds of ways to invest and develop young kids in a way that would be pleasing to the Lord. And when it comes to transgender, when it comes to, to transgender clothing, I think it's worth stating that the Bible forbids men dressing like women and women dressing like Men, this is pretty straightforward in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5. It says this, a woman must not put on men's clothing. A man must not wear women's clothing. Anyone who does this is detestable in the sight of God. And some people might say, well, yeah, but man, like fashion has changed. Like things, things have changed in that world. I would just say like, I, I understand that for one, but, but if, if, if I were to dress like a woman with the intent of looking like a woman, then this would apply to me. And so the Bible is very clear on this. And some people would say, well, yeah, that's Old Testament. That's the, that's the law. It doesn't necessarily directly state that in the New Testament. I, I would say the New Testament echoes this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul's given us a long list, by the way, just a little caveat here, of, uh, of sin. And the Bible does not explicitly single out homosexual sin or sexual sin as the only sin. There's a whole lot of things that break the heart of God and denigrate who God has created us to be. So let's just be clear on that. And, and if you're new to Central, we talk about all those as well. Uh, we talk about lying, cheating, stealing. We talk about adultery. We talk about uh, living life that, that's a, as a chronic complainer. Uh, we, we talk about all those things. So today you've just landed on a day when we're talking about biblical sexuality and gender. But here's what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. He says, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or worship idols or commit adultery or male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or are greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Of God. So the Bible is pretty, pretty straightforward on this one. I, one thing I do highlight here is, is the word male prostitutes. That word in the Greek is malakos. It, in this context, it is this image of a man dressing up as a woman uh, with the intent of having sex with another man. So it does address cross-dressing in that way. Same-sex activity goes against God's creative intent of creating us male and female. Furthermore, it's important for us to understand that our sexuality is deeply related to our identity. When people abuse sex or turn from God's design for sex, it not only is a sinful act, but it strikes a blow at their humanity. 
few verses later in 1 Corinthians 6, now in verse 18, it says, there's a sense in which sexual sins are different from all others. In sexual sins, we violate the sacredness of our own bodies. These bodies were made for God given and God modeled love for becoming one with another. Or didn't you realize that your body is a sacred place, the place of the Holy Spirit? Don't you see that you cannot live however you please, squandering what God paid such a high price for? Whenever we realize the high price that God has paid for us, it leads us, it motivates us to avoid heterosexual sin, to avoid homosexual sin, to, to guard against any kind of, of sin that would, would defile who God created us to be. So what does the science say about sex and the possibility of more than two genders? A Wall Street Journal article, two uh, secular scholars, professors, Colin Wright, an evolutionary biologist at Penn State, Emma Hilton, developmental biologist at University of Manchester, they make this statement in the Wall Street Journal. In humans, as in most animals or plants, an organism's biological sex corresponds to one or two distinct types of reproductive anatomy. In humans, reproductive anatomy is unambiguously male or female at birth more than 99.98% of the time. No third type of sex cell exists in humans. Therefore, there is no sex spectrum or additional sexes beyond male and female. Sex is binary. So what does the Bible say about sexuality and gender? If a person is struggling between their internal sense of self and their biological sex, which determines who they are? Well, the Bible would say their biological sex. Science would say their biological sex, which leads us to the next question. What should a person do who is struggling with gender dysphoria? What does a person who struggles with feelings of that their internal self identifies more closely with the opposite sex or, or a new gender, or what if they identify with no gender at all? To answer that question, I think there are several things that we might consider. Uh, the first that we might consider is, is their internal struggle because of a societal stereotype? In other words, I'm not saying this is true across the board, but, but there are some stereotypes within our culture. So if a girl prefers contact sports over gymnastics, or if a girl prefers short hair over long hair, or if a young girl prefers the colors uh, blue and black instead of pink and purple, then there are societal stereotypes that would say to that young girl, perhaps you could explore, you should explore whether you're a, a male or a female. And currently in, in some public schools, teachers are encouraged to help facilitate that conversation with that young lady. Now I'm not saying that's always true across the board. That does not mean that they're experiencing gender dysphoria if that is the case. In those cases, it's helpful for parents to not make it a big deal to not try to blow it up, but simply relax and affirm who that individual is as a person. Second, we might consider what if the internal struggle is based on gender dysphoria? What if the person really does not identify with their biological sex? Well, how many people in that sense really are transgender? According to studies, it is 0.5% of the population. So half of a percent of population would fall into that category. Now, by sharing that number, I'm in no way suggesting that it isn't a big deal. 
especially if you're the person dealing with that, if you fall into that percentage. In fact, for you, it is very real. If that's you or someone you know, someone you love, let me just be very clear that no matter what you've done up to this point, no matter how you've responded to that dysphoria, whether it be uh, transdressing, whether it be uh, taking a clinical action or, or surgical action, I want to be very, very clear that God loves you deeply. I, I want to be very clear that, that we love you as your church family. I want to be very clear that I love you as, as your pastor. And, and you matter to God, you're important to God, and you matter to us. At the same time, you need to understand that there's, it's become a societal norm to give you, I think, bad advice that simply is not true. And what society would say that is if, if people disagree with you, then they cannot be welcoming to you. If people disagree with you, then that cannot be loving towards you. And that is simply not true. We can affirm your value as a person and still be committed to teaching biblical scriptures. The Bible does not condemn transgender people. It simply condemns transgender activity. The same statement could be true of any other sin, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual alike. The Bible does not condemn people, but it does prohibit sinful activity regardless of what that sinful activity is. And the reason why is God has a bigger plan, a better plan, a plan that will lead to life upon life. It will lead to you overflowing with life, experiencing an abundant life. And that's what God desires for you to experience. Just to be clear that, that we're all sinners. One thing we say here at Central every Sunday is that we are imperfect people in progress. The Bible puts an exclamation point on that statement in Romans 3.10 where he says, there's no one righteous, not even one. The fact of the matter is that Jesus came into this world to heal our brokenness. He came to a broken humanity and all of us have been broken by sin in one way or another. And let me be very clear, gender dysphoria is not a moral issue. Gender dysphoria is a psychological condition that causes a person to think and feel like they are the opposite sex. But that does not mean that you are the opposite sex. Here's what all of us have to understand as moral agents in God's creation. All of our decisions have moral ramifications. And Jesus offers a wholeness that will bring unity between your biological sex and your sense of self. That wholeness doesn't come by changing your physical anatomy. It doesn't come by, by, by giving into your feelings. It comes by giving attention to what's, what's going on and what, what, what God desires to do in you, what God desires to do through you. That is true for every single sin situation that we as human beings can encounter. Jesus gives us the power to deal with our heart and our mind so that we might be whole people. And let me say this, transitioning will not move you closer to who you're created to be. It will move you further from that. Walt Hay uh, Heyer, he, he had struggled with gender confusion from an early age. He, he suggests he began struggling at the age of four years old. At age 42, he underwent gender reassignment surgery. For eight years, he lived as a female named Laura Jensen. During that time, he st was still unhappy and even attempted suicide at one point. He has since gone back to his original gender and has given himself to studying the subject of gender transition. And, those who, and these are some of the, the statistics that, that he's uncovered by partnering with different universities and, and a variety of different studies. He, he makes these statements about those who have underwent reassignment surgery. 
41% of those who underwent reassignment surgery attempted suicide. 50% have depressive symptoms. 90% have significant psychopathology. In other words, there, there, there has been abuse. Uh, there was trauma that led to psychological issues, but they all went unresolved. So from the research, 90% of people who are truly struggling with gender dysphoria, a great deal, a great place to start processing that, a great place to begin healing from, from, from some of those, the, the, those hurts is to address past trauma that has led to a lot of hurt in your life. And I would just say this, we are here for you. However we can help with that, whether that's talking to us about that or whether that's us helping you get uh, professional help to address past trauma, uh, not, not dealing with sexual issues at all, but, but trauma from your past so that you can experience wholeness and healing that God desires for you. Third, I would say this, uh, a third question that actually that I want to just pose out there. What if my child is struggling with gender? Some parents ask this question, and so I want to speak to the parents for a moment. What if my child is struggling with gender? This is a big question. Do you let them choose their gender? Do you go along with them in their gender choice? Do you take them to the clinic to allow them to get puberty blockers? This issue for Gen Z and for parents is massive, to say the least. A recent Gallup poll found that 5.6 U.S. adults identify as LGBTQ, that's up 4.5% from 2017. But look at this. 16% of Generation Z identify themselves as LGBTQA. In other words, Generation Z is becoming increasingly sexually amorphous or sexually without definition. Miley Cyrus made this statement. I don't relate to being boy or girl, and I don't have to have my partner relate to boy or girl. Furthermore, while gender dysphoria is a condition that affects a small percentage of the population, when it comes to Generation Z, something else is happening. Uh, Brown University professor published an article that has since been suppressed by the LGBTQ community and is difficult to find, actually, if, even if you Google search it online. But the study found this, the rapid onset of gender dysphoria among teens and young adults may be a social contingent linked with having friends who identify as LGBT and identity politics, peer culture, and increase in internet use. In other words, their peers have a lot to say about that increase in that percentage of people identifying as LGBT. The Travis Stock Center is the main clinic in London for treating gender dysphoria. The Travis Stock Center in the UK treated 17 females in 2009. In 2019, they treated 1,740. That is a 5,000% increase in just 10 years. Research on this rapid onset of gender dysphoria among teens reveals the following. 63% had one or more diagnosis of psychiatric disorder, such as neurodevelopment disorder, including traumatic events in their life, cutting, ADHD, OCD, eating disorders, and bipolar. Many of those with rapid onset of gender dysphoria had trans friends who reported feeling more popular since they came out. 72% when taking to gender therapists or physicians were never encouraged to explore issues of mental health before proceeding with gender transition. 
Again, to the Wall Street Journal article by Colin Wright and Emma Hilton, the large majority of gender dysphoria among youth eventually grow out of their feelings of dysphoria during puberty. Affirmation therapies that insist a child's cross-sex identity should never be questioned and puberty-blocking drugs advertised as a way for children to buy time to sort out their identities only solidify feelings of dysphoria, setting them on a pathway to more invasive medical interventions and permanent infertility. The pathologizing of sex atypical behavior is extremely worrying and regressive. End of quote. For parents, prescribing drugs and puberty-stopping medications is not the way to help your 12-year-old who is struggling with their identity. So what should, should parents do? Let me give you three summary statements as we begin to close. Three summary statements for parents. What should parents do? Uh, first, be informed. Parents, let's, let's be informed. Let's be informed. What does God's word say about this? Let's just pray and ask God to give us wisdom, not just to understand what, what the Bible says about this, but practical wisdom to apply it in our home, in our community, whenever it comes to issues of sexuality and gender. Be informed of what your children are viewing online. As parents, you do not have an obligation to respect your child's online privacy. If your children are deleting their internet history, then remove internet privileges. There's a lot of software out there to block harmful content that once your child sees, they would never be able to forget. Be informed. Be informed of what they're doing online. Be informed of who they're following, what they're looking at, what they're liking on social media. Be informed of who they're texting and what they're Snapchatting. Be informed of who their friends are and what their friends are like. Now, you need to do this very cautiously, very wisely, but very firmly. I would say guide who your children select to be their friends. That will impact the pathway and the trajectory of the future. Second, not only be, invo- not only be informed, but second, be involved. Be involved. Uh, this takes time, and I, I get it. We're all busy. We, we all have a lot of stuff going on. But listen, we have a limited window with our children under our roof. Find out what time of day that your child is most talkative and make yourself available at those times. Some people would say, hey, I love, I love my kids. Therefore, I have relationship with my kids. And I would say love does not always equal relationship. There's a lot of parents that deeply love their children, but the relationship is severed. Here's the formula, love plus time, especially with young kids. Love plus time equals relationship. We prove our love by the time that we give them, and the more time we give them, the more influence we'll have with them. The third summary statement, be in charge. Now, I'm not saying be a dictator. I'm not saying, you know, it's my way or the highway. That, That never goes too far with anyone But when it comes to your child's identity, when it comes to your child's decisions, you are the mature one. They are not. It's absolutely ridiculous to think that a child or preteen would have the capability of making gender choice before their brains have even developed fully. That doesn't even make sense. Most people are not fully developed psychologically until they're about 25 years old. Students, let me encourage you, lean into your parents' wisdom. Your brain is still developing. They, they, they know things that you do not currently know. They have perspective on things that are harmful to you that you may not have experienced yet. God has given you parents for a reason. And one of the reasons is to allow them to help speak into your life and to guide your life. Moms and dads, 
Let me just say you need to be the first person to talk to your child about gender and sexuality. Now, at the age of six, I'm not suggesting that you tell your child everything you know about the topic, but I am suggesting that you start the conversation. Allow it to become a safe place. Allow, allow, make it normal to have uncomfortable conversations with your children. So whenever they hear uncomfortable conversations on the playground, when they hear uncomfortable conversations in the locker room or on the ball team or in the classroom, you'll be the person that they turn to because you've already waded into the waters of uncomfortable conversations with them already. Start the conversation. When it comes to parenting, be in charge. I hear parents say all the time, I want to be their friends. If they don't verbalize it, their behavior screams it, that they're, they're positioning themselves because they want to be their friends and not be the one in charge. But listen, you're the parent. God has given you that high calling. He's given you a, a great calling, a high, a high responsibility. Listen, your children will have a variety of friends throughout their life. And if you parent well, if you take charge through their early years, through their adolescent years, through their teen years, then when they're grown, then you will be their best friends because they'll look back on their life and realize how you guided them, how you protected them, how you saved them from so many pitfalls that their peers stumbled into because you were willing to take charge. You're in charge, not the school, not the school counselor, not the gender clinic, you're in charge. Let me say this again. If you're struggling in this area, I want you to know that we love you deeply. I want you to know that God loves you deeply. He created you. He, he has good things for you. He wants the best for you. He's big enough. He's a big enough God for you to come to him with your anger, with your feelings, with, with your, your concerns around this area. He's, he's a big enough God for you to be very raw and honest about what you're experiencing and he has patience to journey with you. We see throughout the Bible people discovering who they are and God's great patience with them throughout that journey. I want you to know we're, we're praying for you. My prayer for you and for everyone that calls Central Christian Church their home is that we would be a people, even though we've been badly broken by sin, that we would be increasingly growing and experiencing the wholeness that only he can give by his power and by the spirit working in us. My prayer for you is that we would all come to this place where Ephesians 2.10 is not only something that we know intellectually, but it's what we embody in our daily life. It says, for we are God's masterpiece. Check it out. You are God's masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things that he's planned for us long ago. Check it out. Before you were born, God had plans for you. God has a purpose for you. Part of his creation of your physical anatomy is to fulfill that purpose, to step into that call on your life. And he's beautifully equipped you for that. He's profoundly gifted you to accomplish this. He, he has a purpose and a plan for your life. The answer to your identity isn't found in your feelings or your friends. It's found in knowing Jesus and stepping into the call that he has for you. For all of us, what can we do? I would say, one, we can pray. Pray that God moves in profound ways to open our, our eyes, to illuminate scripture so we have, have understanding of it. Pray that God would give us a deep love for people who view this topic from a polar end of the spectrum, who view this from the, a different viewpoint, a different vantage point. Pray God would fill our hearts with love, to with compassion have conversations, to stand up for truth, 
but to love them deeply. We've got to love people. Love people who we agree with, love people we disagree with. And third, don't be afraid to graciously stand up for truth. I'm concerned that we as Christians, locally and globally, have been wooed into silence. Silence for fear of being viewed as a bigot, fear of being viewed as unsophisticated, fear of being viewed as uneducated, fear that somehow standing up for a biblical view is no longer attainable view, and that is simply not true. The enemy would want you to think that you're all alone in this, would want you to think that you're a minority in this, but that is not the truth. The truth is that a life built on God's eternal word is firm foundation for all of us. And the loving thing to do is to communicate that truth. We might not be able to explain it as well as Preston Sprinkle does in his book Embodied, but whenever we take this posture that says, I just want to love people well. I want to love people the way that God loves them. I want to communicate to them in a way that would, would be in line with God's created design for them. Whenever we take that posture, whenever we have that heart, God will help us wade into those waters of difficult conversations. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, I thank you for your radical love and for your radical grace for all of us, God. It's only by your grace, Jesus, that we can know you. All of us, man, we've fallen so short of your standards. But God, it's your grace that lifts our head. It's your grace that reconnects us with you. And so we just thank you first and foremost for your radical grace. God, I pray for everyone that may be listening to this who is currently struggling with sexual identity and gender or gender dysphoria. God, I pray that they would have their eyes opened to the way that you created them, the reality of the plans that you have for them. And God, that, that there's nothing they could do that would make you love them even more or any less. But God, you're, you're a good father and you want to walk with them through this season. So God, I pray you would you just open their eyes to your love and open their eyes, God, to your plans for them. God, I pray for parents who are, have kids who are struggling with this. God, would you give them an extra portion of grace and patience? God, to journey with them. God, would you give them wisdom from your word to walk with them, God? Divine moments to speak words of life into their kids, to their sons, their daughters, Lord. I pray, God, for teachers and educators who are bombarded with this, God, and encouraged to take kids on an exploration journey that would be contrary to your word. God, I pray that you would give them wisdom, that, God, you would give them provision where provision's needed. Encourage, God, to stand up for what will ultimately help the kids entrusted to their care thrive in life. Jesus, I pray your blessing on your church. God, I pray your blessing on everyone watching this for the sake of your name, for the building of your kingdom, and for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.